Kings and kingdom will all pass away, but there's something about thy name. So let's go ahead and stand and sing this chorus. How's everyone? It's good to see you. In June, it will be 17 years that GCA has been a public church. God has been very, very faithful to us. And I have always been a bit of a non-traditionalist, a bit of an iconoclast. I like to go around and knock over people's idols. And I like this morning, I like the fact that traditionally in the church, and I grew up in the Lutheran church, so I grew up with a church calendar. I grew up knowing about Palm Sunday, but I also was fed all the traditions that go with Palm Sunday, including the idea that it happened on a Sunday which is a tradition. It may or may not have. It really depends on whether Jesus actually died on a Friday or whether he died some other day. So I like Palm Sunday in as much as that day Jesus satisfied a great deal of prophecy, not only that he was recognized as the Messiah in Jerusalem, but also that he rode in on a donkey that no one had ever ridden before. And also the fact that the people in the streets, as they threw down palm branches and threw down their cloaks for him to walk on, that they cried, Hosanna to the son of David, recognizing him as the Messiah from the lineage of David, who was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And then, of course, you can see that they were expecting the king is now entering Jerusalem You are the Messiah, you are the son of David, Hosanna, because they expected the kingdom right away, satisfying the continuation of the kingdom promises and the kingdom anticipation that still exists to this very day that we read about out of Ezekiel on Wednesday night. So in Palm Sunday, if indeed it was a Sunday, But on that day of the triumphal entry, I see a great deal of satisfaction of prophecy in the Old Testament that's all being wrapped up in Christ in his exaltation by the people of Jerusalem who barely a week later were crying, crucify him and his blood be on us and on our children. And a week later, he was paying for their sins, though they rejected him as a savior A week later, he was saying things like, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Because it was prophesied that this was the very thing they were going to do. And next week, in our annual communion service, we're going to talk about that. We're going to memorialize yet again the fact that Jesus came and died for our sin. And at least once a year, we need to just stop and remember that that's the very heart and core of Christianity. So next week is our homecoming weekend. Starting on Thursday, I believe, there will be people coming in from around the country. Saturday, 4 o'clock, 
We will be meeting over here at the center. Don't come here. We'll be meeting there. Afterwards, we'll be eating together in Murfreesboro at the farmer's restaurant there. Sunday morning, our communion service will be there. And then afterwards, our potluck. And because I don't believe in luck, I call it our pot providence. And so we'll all be getting together and eating that day as well. Now, the reason I began by saying I'm not really a traditionalist, which has worked well for us for 17 years, is that this morning, though so much of the church world is celebrating Palm Possibly Sunday, we're going to continue in the book of 2 Peter. You can turn to 2 Peter 2, although we're not really going to be in 2 Peter 2 for a while, because we're going to start this morning in the book of Jude. Because I told you that Peter and Jude have a lot to say that's very much in common. And this morning is going to be about false teachers. That is really what Jude is on about. The fact that Israel has been infiltrated by false prophets and false teachers. Peter's going to pick up that same theme that Israel has always had false prophets among them and false teachers among them today. And then both of them are going to use very colorful and condemnatory language for those who are false teachers, for those who are perverting the gospel of Christ, for those who are undermining the genuine teaching that came from the prophets and from the apostles. But then Jude is also going to lead us into an area that for 17 long years now, I have studiously avoided. I was asked when we first started here, I was asked, are you going to spend any time talking about all the various forms of Christianity that are out there in the world, the errant forms of Christianity? Are you going to call out false preachers? Are you going to name names? Are you going to point at people? And I said, no, because if I started down that track, I'd be doing it for the rest of my life. There are organizations, quote-unquote ministries, that just do that, heresy hunters, that are just out there finding the plentiful error that is out there in the Christian church. And so I leave that to them. They can do that work. I decided that I was just going to teach the Bible, just stick to the Bible. I called it laying down straight sticks. The idea was that if you understood what the truth was, then you would recognize error when you saw it. The same way that if you had a straight stick in your hand, you would recognize every crooked stick because your straight stick, by comparison, would show that it's crooked. And so that's where that theory of straight sticks came from. And it has nothing, no nothing, to do with plank of wood. And yet, somewhere in our history, that also happened. Now, I also decided that Just teaching the Bible was going to mean that I wasn't going to wander off into any of the apocryphal books, any of the secondary teachings, any of the stuff that lays around the edges of the Bible. Even though the apocrypha happens to exist between the Old and the New Testament, it was never considered to be canonical, either by the Jewish authorities or by the early church, but they recognized that there was some value to it, and so the early printings of the Bible from the Gutenberg to the Catholic Bible include the Apocrypha in them, but only as a subset of the Bible. Oftentimes it's like, this is the Old Testament, then here's the Apocrypha, because historically that's where it occurred in that 400-year gap where God was essentially silent. And then you find the New Testament. The Apocrypha includes history books like First and Second Maccabees, which is very interesting. And I would say to you, if you want to read it, read it. It's all about the Maccabean Rebellion during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's actually quite inspiring to see the way that the people defended their own faith against the incursion of the Greek armies. Very interesting reading. But it also includes books that we would say, okay, we can see why that's not part of the Bible, why that's not considered part of the canon of the Bible. 
And if you have some spare time and you just want to do some reading and studying, the study of how the Bible was canonized and why these books is a very interesting study. Take the time to read it. Read why certain books have what we consider canonicity and why others don't. In the first century, especially among the Jews, they were very familiar with some of what was called the pseudepigrapha, fake writing. Pseudo, fake or false, grapha, writing. They were familiar with the fact that people would write stuff and then give it biblical names in order to try to influence people. But some of that early writing contained a certain amount of what was in the oral tradition that had been passed down among the Jews generation to generation. And so there's no real way to know whether the things that were purported to have been said by, let's say in this case, Enoch, because we're going to talk about Enoch this morning, there's no way to know if Enoch actually said these things and yet there is an apocryphal book of Enoch. And there is a general consensus among the Jews that follows on the oral tradition of the Jews that some of what was in Enoch was generally true or at least accredited to Enoch. Now, the reason that the apocryphal book of Enoch is not in the Bible is because it doesn't have historic veracity. It simply doesn't have a notable prophet behind it anywhere. But that doesn't mean that everything that was written in the book of Enoch is patently untrue across the board. It was very well known among the early Jews. So well known, the whole point of this is, so well known that it actually gets quoted by Jude. Who says, as Enoch said. And then he's going to quote something that I'm going to read for you right out of the book of Enoch. And that's going to be the first time in 17 years that I've ever read anything to you out of one of the apocryphal books. Because I don't... (laughs) Heretic, I know. That's why I'm spending plenty of time explaining it to you. Because Jude does apparently quote from it. But what you're also going to see is that the section that Jude quotes from Enoch also has reference that you can find in the Old Testament, the coming of Christ and his ten thousands of his saints. So interestingly, even though Jude could have found it somewhere in the Old Testament, Jude says, as Enoch said, and then he quotes right from the book. Enoch is also going to talk about an event that you can't find anywhere in the Old Testament, the wrestling of Satan with Michael over the body of Moses. In an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses, you can actually read about that happening. Jude picks it up and says, as if that were a fact, that this actually happened. And again, you're not going to find reference to it anywhere in the Old Testament. So Jude seems very influenced by Jewish apocryphal writing, and he quotes some of it in his short letter. So I'm going to tell you right up front that that's where he's getting this information. I am not arguing for, so that nobody wants to burn me at the stake, I am not arguing that the apocryphal writing is therefore canonical and is now therefore to be as weighty on your conscience as any other book of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the first century Jews were very familiar with the apocryphal writing And the apocryphal writing appears to have contained some of the oral tradition of the Jews. And that is what Jude is making reference to. Now, is it completely out of hand for Jude to do something like that? For him to quote a bit of pseudopographa? Here he quotes a bit of false writing. Is that completely wrong of Jude to have done? Well, no, not really, because... Even Paul makes reference to stuff that isn't in the Bible and says that it's true. Um, In Titus 1.12, Paul writes, One of them themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he goes on to say, and that's true. 
Okay, well, what's he doing? He's quoting one of the Greek poets, and is he saying, because he has quoted them, is he saying, so now that Greek poet has the same authority as the rest of Scripture? Well, no, he's clearly not. However, in writing to the church, in writing, in this case, to Titus, he has quoted what we would consider an extra-biblical source. And we are wise enough to know when we read something like that, that it is a source that isn't from the Old Testament, that isn't from Jewish history, that isn't from the prophets. And we know that Paul is quoting it because it fits in the context of what he's saying. Does this make sense? Yes. Okay, I only ask that you give Jude the exact same freedom to utilize whatever sources he chooses to utilize within the context of what he's saying. Does that make sense? Yes. Now we know where it comes from. We know where he got these ideas. And again, don't read Jude through 21st century Gentile eyes. That'll only confuse you. You have to recognize that there is a history behind this. You have to recognize that it has a Jewish history. And we're talking about first century Jews who are scattered outside of Jerusalem. Jude is there with John and James and Peter. He's in Jerusalem. He is the brother of Jesus, and he is steeped in Hebrew tradition. And so it's not surprising, again, being an honest writer, being an honest reporter, it's not surprising that some of that tradition would come out in the things he's writing. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, good. So nobody minds if I read a little bit of Apocrypha this morning? Everybody turn to the book right ahead of Revelation. Go to the very last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. Go back one book. You're going to be in Jude. Jude is a very, very short book. And we're going to read the whole thing this morning. Because it is very parallel to what Peter says in Peter 2. And no one knows for certain, although there are plenty of commentaries and lots of speculation, nobody knows for certain whether Peter copied Jude or whether Jude copied Peter. I'm more prone to think, since they were together in Jerusalem, I'm more prone to think that they were quoting from common history, common source. This is what they both were aware of and were trying to promote, the idea that God is going to condemn false teachers, false prophets, anybody who messes with the purity of the genuine gospel. Make sense? Yes. Can you see I'm being real careful this morning? Yeah. I keep saying, make sense? Tender. Are you with me? Nobody's stoning me? Ever since Jeff yelled heretic, I've been really nervous. I don't... And he didn't yell it, he whispered it, which is even scarier. When you hear that voice under your breath, heretic. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, the beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why does he have to ask them to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, as you continue through the letter here, you're going to see that there were false teachers among them. There were people who were saying other things than what had been handed down to them by the prophets and apostles. So then it was necessary that they stand firm for the actual Christian faith, that they stand firm for what the Bible actually had promoted to that point and what the apostles were out there teaching. Because, get this right, every time, every generation of the church, every time there have been human beings on the planet who have promoted what Jesus Christ taught and what his apostles taught, there have always been people who have ridden on the back of that in order to either aggrandize themselves or to add something to it to make it more, say, works-oriented or to make it more appealing to their particular group or their particular traditions or their particular denomination. 
For 2,000 years, the Christian church has been under attack the same way that before that the Hebrew religion was under attack because false teachers always want to come in and say, yes, yes, I see what it says, but here's the rest of the story. I've gotten this either through some Gnostic sense or I've gotten that through some revelation or allegorizing the Bible so that I understand the deeper meaning and you all are very very fortunate that I'm here to explain to you what that deeper meaning is the last couple of days I have been watching a Netflix documentary that if you if you get a chance go on Netflix and watch it it's called wild wild country it's the story of the Bhagwan Rajneesh and what he did back in the early 80s in Oregon I remember because I was living in Southern California where there were a lot of Hollywood-type stars who were getting really into the whole Rajneesh movement. I remember hearing his name. I remember it was kind of around. Bhagwan Rajneesh, okay, yeah. But I had no idea the intensity with which and the amount of people who followed the Bhagwan cult in Oregon and how he overtook the town around him and how the United States government was at war with him, and how he was finally thrown out of the country. I mean, it's a fascinating six-part documentary. The point of bringing that up is, I've been saying to Janine the last couple of days, how? How did he do that? How did he have, at one point, 15,000 people up there at his ranch in Oregon? How did he have that number of followers, considering that most of what he said and taught was just watered-down, standard Eastern mysticism, Zenish, semi-Buddhist stuff? Why did people flock to that? And the only thing I can come to is that people want Someone to tell them that they're going to be okay. All they have to do is this. Whatever the this is. Just do this and I can promise you, you're going to be okay. So whether that's meditation, whether that's some of the, the wildness that went on up there in Rashnish Piram. That's what they called the town that they built up there which was a fully impressive, fully functioning, operating town they built from scratch on barren land. I mean, it was astounding what they did because people just wanted somebody to tell them what to do. Just tell me what to do. And then for a couple of years, he was silent. He didn't talk to anybody. He went into his house where, by the way, his followers were trying to get him 365 Rolls Royces, one for every day of the year. He lived in his utter opulence and didn't speak for a couple of years, during which his disciples believed that was one of his deepest periods. He said nothing. And people attributed to him this depth of knowledge because they just want someone to tell them what to do. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because that is how people have perverted the Christian religion, how they have taken what the Bible says and have twisted it for their own means. They're able to accomplish that because human beings want so badly for somebody to tell them what to do. So if you start with Christianity, if you start with Christ as a Savior, and then you say, and he'll be your Savior if you just... And then fill in the blank. And usually the if you just is something like if you just tithe to me. If you just come to my church all the time. If you buy my version of the Bible. If you buy my books. If you whatever it is. It's Jesus plus something. Jesus plus my stuff, and I'll tell you what my stuff is. You do my stuff, and I can guarantee you that you're going to be okay in this life and in the life to come. It happens in Christianity. It happened in Bhagwan Rajneesh. It happens in all the world religions. It's just telling people if they'll just do something, they're going to be okay. So I say all that to say what Jude and Peter are about to talk about is not... 2,000 years ago, 
It's just as common today. It's still going on today. There are still false teachers today. And there are still people who will tell you, yeah, 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 that Christian thing, in fact, the Bhagwan people actually used Christianity as their enemy because it was the local townspeople who were Christians who were enemies of theirs. So Bhagwan walked around saying, I'm not Jesus. I'm not Gandhi. I'm guessing the Rolls Royces were a giveaway. And he's saying... And he's saying, if we have to be violent, then we have to be violent. Okay, the denial of Christianity, the denial of Christ, the denial of the one person who has any evidence that he actually was the Son of God come to planet Earth, that denial exists all over the place and in way too much of what's called Christianity today. And as a consequence, I want you to listen to these words that Jude is saying and that Peter is saying because they are going to say God is not only against that kind of false teaching, but he is so sovereign that he has reserved the, the darkness he has reserved the judgment for those people and Jude and Peter is going to, are going to use that as evidence that God not only knows how to keep angels under chains of darkness for their rebellion against him but that he also knows how to preserve those that are his own how to preserve his own elect I mean absolute sovereignty is in the midst of this and whenever we talk about absolute sovereignty we try to put it in the positive sphere that God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of people but in 2nd Peter 2 and in Jude here we're going to see God is absolutely sovereign in the condemnation of people as well and that's the warning don't be among the people that God is sovereignly condemning and the easiest way to be among them is to start promoting falsehood starting at verse 4 we've gotten through the hellos from Jude earnestly contend contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the Saints oh that's right once for all once for all what does that phrase mean means once and done done once once for all it was once for all delivered to the Saints here it is this is the faith this is what it is Christ came Christ died he paid your sin debt you've been chosen by God written down the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world that's the faith that was handed down to you once for all contend for that earnestly believe stand on that because there are going to be people verse 4 for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation do you hear the sovereignty in that there are certain people who have crept in in order to teach you falsely but God is so sovereign long beforehand before they even got there before they even started the false teaching he long beforehand marked them out for condemnation because he knows they're going to teach that for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ who turn the grace of God into licentiousness Paul asked the question should we sin all the more so that grace may abound Paul's answer was heaven forbid God forbid absolutely not okay well now here's Jude saying there are certain people certain false teachers ungodly people who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness in other words they have said that the grace of God is sufficient that you can live any old way you want to now I can answer the question about Bhagwan Roshanish why did people flock to him why did people go there because his teaching was to be the complete man to be the new man you had to have unbridled freedom in every facet of your life including sexually to live any way you wanted and to indulge your flesh in every way you could imagine that appeals to people that makes people go yeah and great I didn't come up with it the guy with the beard came up with it and so I'm gonna follow him because I like what he says in other words he turned human behavior licentious 
and people flock to it. Within Christian circles, the warning is don't turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Don't start with, well, hey, it's all under the blood. No matter what I do, I'm forgiven. I had a boss one time, many years ago, who tried to get me to participate in what I would call an illegal scheme that he was trying to play against the corporation that was paying us both. He wanted me to join him, and he wanted me, as the head of one of his departments, to sign off on one of these things. And I said, I can't. I can't sign off on this. Not only is it illegal, but it's a fireable offense, and my conscience will not allow me to do this. I'm a Christian. To which he said, so am I. I'm Presbyterian. But I figure, since God already elected me, this doesn't count against me. It doesn't matter. That's what Jude is talking about. Thinking, well, God is gracious. And then instead of thinking, because God has been so kind and so gracious to a sinner like me, I should live a life that reflects my love for a holy God. Instead, you start saying, well, the grace of God is so complete and covers me so completely, I can live any old way I want. And God is still going to save me because, after all, hey, I'm the elect. Jude is saying, don't be like that. Don't think like that. The essence of the Christian religion, though faith that was handed down to us once and for all, the essence of the Christian faith is, yes, Christ did all that. Yes, grace exists. But think about all of the texts after that that say, now, here's how you should live. Here's how you should be. And there are things like not only being loving and kind, but being honest and being forthright and being Loving enough to your neighbor that you wouldn't defraud your neighbor. Uh, these are all, I would say they fall under the category of moral and ethical behaviors and rules that are part of real, genuine, full-fledged Christianity. But there are people infiltrating the church, according to Jude, who are saying, nah, you don't got to be like that. After all, you're saved, you're elected, remember what God said. And so don't Turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Because to do that is to deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The word master there is the exact same word that Peter is going to pick up. It is the word despotes in the Greek. It's the word from which we get despot. Now, in the negative sense, a despot is somebody who has absolute control, absolute authority, the power over life and death. Usually when you hear the word despot used anymore, it's because of somebody bad. But in this case, it's referring to the absolute sovereign God who's in charge of absolutely everything, the despotes, and his son, Jesus Christ. So it is a denial of our despotes which I believe is a reference to Yahweh, to God himself, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And our Lord, Jesus Christ. And our Lord, Jesus Christ. This is a really important word at this moment. We say it so often that we forget how important it is. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? He's in charge. He's the one who's in control. And so if he says it, it stands. If he says it, that's the way you're supposed to be. And if he said that you're supposed to be different than the world, that you're not supposed to act like the world, that you're not supposed to be involved in all these worldly activities, but that you're supposed to be separate from the world, then he, as your Lord, has the absolute right to tell you to be like that. Does that make sense? But to be any other way. To turn the grace of God into licentiousness is to deny him. So you can see why those certain persons were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Verse 5. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those 
who did not believe, to those who did not have faith, pistuo, the, the verb form of pistis is that word. The ones who didn't have faith in God, even though God delivered them out of Egypt, you'll remember, he took them into the wilderness, he marched them around for 40 years, everybody over 20 died, only 20 and under actually went into the promised land. So Jude picks that up, because remember, his audience is Jewish. And he writes and says, remember how God, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So faith is absolutely vital. And get this, in Jude's reckoning of what faith is, faith is actually believing what God said and then living it, acting on it. So God brought people out of Egypt. Obviously, that's the history of the Jews. Subsequently, he destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of that great day. Okay, that's really deep. That's really, really interesting. Because there are fallen angels. We know that. They are now called the diamond, the, the demons. We know that there are angels that once had an estate in heaven that have fallen and followed Lucifer when with his tail, according to the book of Revelation, he took a third of heaven down with him. Okay, so now Jude is saying those angels have not kept their own domain. They, they abandoned their proper abode, but then he has kept them. Again, God's sovereignty. He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness. Okay, where is under darkness? <clears throat> he has kept them in a place that is utterly devoid of light where they are chained and locked away. For what purpose? Until the judgment of the great day. There's a great day of judgment coming in God's mind, and in that day he's going to judge angels, and he's going to cast them at that point into the lake of fire, which was created for the devil and his angels. Okay, so this is the big panorama of human history. It's not just about people being moved around on the planet like checkers. It's about the great cosmic war in heaven. It's about the fall of angels. It's about God and his sovereignty keeping angels at bay. It's about the elect angels that serve God and, and the myriads of angels that worship him every day. All of this stuff that we don't think about in our day-to-day -day life. But Paul would say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The real wrestling we're doing is against principalities and powers spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this world, of this age. That's really what's going on here. So Jude tries to pull back that curtain and say those false teachers that have crept in unaware, that are undermining the faith that was once and for all given to you, well, God has put aside a, a judgment for them. Their judgment has already been determined the same way that God determined the judgment of angels because he's so in control. Now, I'm not going to get into what those angels did that was the reason that God put them under chains of darkness until the day of judgment. There's a whole lot of speculation about it. I will leave it for this moment at the angels fell. If you're curious, you can go back and read about it in Genesis and read about the fall of certain angels. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality. Okay, in the same way that the angels that fell indulged in great immorality. He's also drawing a direct parallel, those that crept in, that said the grace of God is a reason for licentiousness, end up indulging in this gross immorality. So since they have indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and are exhibited as an example, what, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? You all know the story. It's a Sunday school story. You all know the story. Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to them? Demolished. Fire from heaven. Giant hailstones. 
demolish them. Jude says, that's an example. That's for your information. They indulged in gross immorality and God judged them. And the angels that didn't keep their first estate indulged in great immorality. God is judging them, keeping them in chains of darkness until the great judgment. And the false teachers who turned grace into licentiousness, God is also keeping them, judging them beforehand, marked out these people for their condemnation. What is he getting at? God in his sovereignty knows how to judge those who don't follow in the faith once delivered to the saints. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, fresh, and went after strange fresh, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same manner, these men, which men? The certain persons that crept in unnoticed. Yet, in the same manner, these men also by dreaming, in other words, by making stuff up, by coming up with their own fabrications, also by dreaming, they defile the flesh because they reject authority and they revile the NASB says angelic majesties at that point. It's actually the word doxa, which is glory. Doxas, it's the plural form of it. And so it's referring to the glorious things that exist in heaven. The glories of heaven and fallen angels and the whole heavenly realm that we can't begin to fathom. We can't begin to understand these men reject the authority that comes from God or from God's word and they revile the doxas, the, the glory, the heavenly glories translated here angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, Fascinating. The reason that he went back and mentioned that out of the assumption of Moses wasn't because he was trying to give credibility to the assumption of Moses. He brought it up because he wanted to say that Michael the archangel, okay, let's compare you and Michael the archangel for just a moment. Michael the archangel, how much power does he have that you don't have? Okay, well, he's ever living and he is the defender of Israel. And he's the mighty angel of God. Some people even say that Michael the archangel is equatable with Jesus. He's an archangel, a lead angel, a top drawer angel. When it comes to angels, you don't get more angelly than this angel. This is Michael the archangel, okay? He, when contending with Satan, wouldn't pronounce a railing accusation against him, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Why? Because he knows that God is the judge. God is the one who is going to throw him into the lake of fire. God is the one who has the authority. And even the angels with that kind of power knew better than to bring a railing accusation against Michael. Instead, he ends up saying, the Lord rebuke you. Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, we see something very, very similar to this. Where we read, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, which, by the way, is what Satan means. Satan, that, me, that name means the accuser. So he's doing his job. He's standing there on the right hand accusing Joshua, the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So that idea is firmly planted in the Old Testament, in Zechariah's writing, that it's the Lord alone, it's God alone, who has the right to rebuke and to judge Satan. And I would be willing to say that we deeply egocentric humans, we 
people full of our own hubris and pride need to be very careful about venturing into areas of judgment that we just don't have. Even the angels know enough to say, the Lord will handle that. The Lord rebuke you. But they know enough not to take it upon themselves to start thinking they can hand out judgments. Okay, I threw that in for free. The Lord rebuke you, verse 10. But these men, these false teachers, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So, essentially Judas just called them cattle. Essentially Judas said that they act on instinct rather than on recognition of the revelation of God and who he is. Like brute beasts, like natural unreasoning men, that's the instinct that they're operating on. Rather than operating on the basis of thus saith the Lord, they operate on, you know, I had an idea. I had a dream. I came up with an idea. Maybe if you all just do this, send all your money to me. Just do it my way and I can guarantee you you're going to be okay eternally because human beings just want to be told what to do. Does this make sense? Am I talking to myself up here? Because Jude is making it very, very clear that people who do this, that wander away from the real faith, that's why you have to contend earnestly for the real faith that was once delivered to the saints, because there are men who revile things that they don't understand. They revile it. They hate it. They don't understand it. Isn't that true? They just don't understand it, so they end up hating it. And the things that they do know, they know by instinct. But then again, unreasoning animals have instinct. Does anybody here watch nature shows? I am fascinated by baby giraffes. I just want to get that out there, okay? Because baby giraffes, from the moment they're born, the moment they're born, right at that moment, they get up. And they walk. And they go to mom and they're ready to feed. And they're, Where are they learning that? Mom doesn't teach them walk. Mom doesn't teach them here's the milk. Mom doesn't teach them nothing. They know this stuff. How? Instinct. They're operating by instinct. They're doing it because it's hardwired, built into them to act like brute beasts. Meanwhile, I've had babies, and let me say, human babies. <laughs> yeah, not, not a lot of ability there. Not a lot of, but giraffes, oh my gosh. So, my point is this. Jude, knowing that, that animals operate by instinct rather than by knowledge, rather than by learning. They operate by instinct. He says that these men who teach like that are like brute beasts that don't understand heavenly things. And so their teaching is by instinct. What is human instinct? Humans have instincts. What are human instincts? Name a few. Avoid pain. That is automatic. We know that. Avoid pain at all costs. And what's the opposite? Find pleasure. Find pleasure, avoid pain. Nobody had to teach you that. You knew that coming out the gate. You knew it instantly. You knew it, yes, find pleasure, avoid pain. Human instinct, me first. That's a primary human instinct. Babies, when they're born, are completely egocentric, which is why they spend all their time crying about me. Give me more me. And, and we take care of them because they can't do what baby giraffes can do. And so we walk them around and we show them how to eat and all that kind of stuff. We start teaching them. But they have instincts and their primary instinct that most people never get over Amen. is me first. <laughs> me. It's all about me. That's instinctual. Okay, then those people, those very people, avoid pain, maximize pleasure, me first, 
those people get out there and start teaching and calling it religion. And they don't understand heavenly things. They don't understand angelic things. They don't understand anything about the genuine sovereignty of God or the faith that is delivered to the saints. They don't get that, but boy, they'll get out there and say anything that sounds good to other people like themselves. Other people like themselves love philosophies that say, I'll teach you how to avoid pain. I'll teach you how to maximize pleasure. I'll teach you how to make it all about yourself. Well, you can gather a crowd with that kind of teaching. And you can do it under the guise of Christianity. You can do it under the guise of Buddhism. You can do it under the guise of anything you want to call a religion. You can do it under the guise of Scientology. All you got to do is tell people, I can give you a better life. I can make it easier for you. I can make it all about you. And people will flock to your door and bring money. Best life now is a good, good example of that. Jude says, these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay. They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Okay, these are all directly Jewish references, Old Testament references that everybody in his audience would have understood. What's the way of Cain? Cain slew Abel, so they've gone the murderous route. Or Balaam, who took money in order to curse Israel. Or they've perished after the rebellion of Korah. Korah and his whole band were destroyed by God when the earth opened up and they sunk into it. Okay, well, that is demonstration, again, that God knows how to deal with those people. So verse 12 says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Okay, hidden reefs doesn't mean as much to us now. We're talking about an economy that's based very heavily on fishing. You've got the Mediterranean Sea there. You've got the Tiberias Sea. You've got all that. Fishing is a big deal, but especially if you get out on the sea and there's a reef that you can't see and you're in a boat, it'll break your boat or you'll get lodged in the boat. There's no more sailing. Okay, well, that's what Jude is using here as an example and saying these men are like hidden reefs in your love feasts. So the church would get together to have these love feasts. You can read about that in the Didache, that that was a, a regular part of the early church and how they behaved. They would get together and have communal meals that were known as love feasts. But these men would come into the love feasts and wreck it because they're hidden reefs. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Why? Because human instinct is all about me. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wow is right. Okay, so what is Jude telling us? Jude is telling us, be aware of false teachers. There is a faith. There is a faith once delivered. It is once for all spelled out for us. Be aware of men who creep in privately, who creep in and you're not aware of it, and then little by little they start taking you away from the genuine faith and take you into those kind of things that appeal to your licentious nature, that appeal to your human fleshly pride and ego, that appeal to your desire for more me. He says those people who do that, there is a place in eternal darkness reserved for them. Their punishment is waiting on them. Verse 14. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, that is a direct quote from Enoch. First Enoch, right at the beginning of the book, starting in what we would call verse 9, it says, Behold, God shall arrive with the thousands of his holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. Now, that idea of Christ returning with the thousands of his saints to execute judgment is also an idea that's firmly written in the Old Testament. I don't have time to hand out verses, but let me just read a couple of them. Isaiah 66, starting in verse 15, says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger and his fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. The Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Isaiah 40 verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him, and behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Zechariah 14.5 says, You will flee by the valley of my mountains and by the valley of the mountains which reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come with all his holy ones with him. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul picks up the same idea and says, he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and all his saints. And even Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. So this idea of the return of Christ is written throughout the Bible, him coming back with his saints, with his holy ones. So even though Jude did quote from the book of Enoch, I would argue that the, the concept that he pulled out of Enoch is firmly biblical. Does that make sense? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him that one. So you can see, woe to them. Woe to them, because they've gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved Forever. Also about these, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers finding fault. Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Sound familiar? I mean, that's as current today as it's ever been. Why? Why is it as current today as it's ever been? People don't change. My daughter came up with that one. She knows that I've said to her many times, people don't change. Whatever they show you, whatever they are, that's what they are. The only way people change is if God changes them. The only way people change is if the Spirit of God brings about change within them. But people don't change. And as long as there have been people on the planet, whether it was Cain or whether it's people today, people have always been most interested in themselves and in their lust. But you... Verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there shall be mockers 
following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. They're devoid of the Spirit of God. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. (sighs) I so want to comment on that. Yeah? Don't, Don't encourage that behavior. Notice it does not say, condemn those who have doubts. Condemn those who don't believe everything the way you believe it. If you're firm and strong in the faith and you've got all your points together, if anybody else doesn't feel like you do, condemn them. That seems to be the popular notion these days, at least in some little subcamps out there. But look at this, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Can anybody in this room say that you've had an occasional doubt about your faith? Yeah. Your hands didn't go up, but you all nodded. Yeah, the Christian journey, the Christian walk is not always an easy one. I wish that I never doubted anything. I wish that God had shown me a few things where I could go, well, I've got that. I could always look back on that. I mean, that time that I was on the Damascus Road and he knocked me down and he said, Jim, Jim, why do you persecute me? Okay, if I had that to look back on, then I'm not going to doubt so much. But some doubt. It's a tough road. The Christian faith is hard sometimes. So Jude, knowing that, knowing that people are like that, he says, have mercy on those people because we all do it. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, with reverence, hating even the garment that is polluted by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Amen. Great doxology. Okay, that's the book of Jude. That was all introduction. You know the rule. Today I'm calling in my chips. Notice how similar the language is, though, starting in 2 Peter 2, and we'll talk about it at greater length in two weeks. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow after their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. 
If all of that is true, verse 9, then God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and they despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrongs as the wages of their doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them if they had not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. You see the similarity? Same ideas, same language. In two weeks, we'll pick up in Second Peter 2. Next week, homecoming. Hope to see you all there, 4 o'clock on Saturday. Alex and Tom will be teaching that day. We're going to have a, a good day of song and worship and praise to God. And then we're all going to go feast together. And then we're going to commune together on Sunday morning and remember the death of our Lord. That's the plan. Say goodbye to the internet congregation and tell them you hope to see them next weekend. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.